Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to this Monday edition of Political Rewind. I'm Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, filling in for Bill Nygut. We have so much we want to get into in this show after a really newsy weekend, and we'll start with the conclusion of the impeachment trial on Saturday. Seven Republicans ultimately broke ranks uh, to vote with every Senate Democrat to convict former President Donald Trump of inciting an insurrection on the Capitol on January 6th. That's the most bipartisan vote ever in a Senate impeachment trial, but Democrats still fell 10 votes shy of what they needed to convict Trump. I have a great panel with me to break down what happened this weekend and what all of it means in Georgia and beyond, starting with my former colleague Jim Galloway, who's less than a month into his retirement after 40 years at the AJC. Jim, how's fun employment going for you? Uh, it's 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 uh, it's it's a lot more. It, retirement is a lot harder than you might think. But but happy President's Day. <laughs> happy President's Day to you, too, Jim. We also have Democratic strategist Theron Johnson. Theron is the founder and CEO of Paramount Consulting Group and is a past advisor to Joe Biden, Barack Obama, John Lewis and many others. And until a couple minutes ago, he had a baby in his lap. Hi, Theron. Hey, good to be here. Tamar, you sound fantastic. I'm looking forward to this conversation. And yes, the baby is still here. Oh, how old is the baby? (laughs) Seven months. And as Brian said, it is uh, nonstop and the weekends are busy. (laughs) I bet. (laughs) I bet. And and we have Brian Robinson, who you can hear now. He's a media consultant and a Republican strategist with his firm, Robinson Republic. Brian worked for former Congressman Lynn Lynn Westmoreland on Capitol Hill and Governor Nathan Deal, among others. Uh, Now, you have about a a four-and-a-half-year-old, so maybe your job is slightly a little more relaxing these days, Brian? Well, she can feed herself, and she can clothe herself, and she can go to the bathroom by herself. These are all huge, huge uh, bits of progress. (laughs) But she could also run around by herself, so I guess Theron has that on you. Yeah. And last but not least, we have Dr. Audrey Haynes, a professor of political science at UGA's School of Public and International Affairs. Hi, Dr. Haynes. Good morning, Tamar. And you are um, back into your spring semester. What are you teaching this semester? Well, quite appropriately, I'm teaching a course on um, American propaganda and politics and uh, <laughs> and also doing a FYO um, for students in, in that same same uh, area. So lots of things to discuss. Yeah. Unfolding in real time. Exactly. Well, I want to dive right in, uh, starting with with Saturday's impeachment proceedings. Unsurprisingly, the Senate could not muster the 67 votes needed to convict Trump, but that doesn't mean there weren't a bunch of last-minute surprises. Um, We now know, based on reporting we've seen over the weekend, that late Friday House impeachment managers were furiously debating among themselves whether to push to allow for witnesses, which was not part of the original plan. They were doing this after a moderate Republican lawmaker, Jamie Herrera Butler of Washington, indicated she'd be willing to talk about her knowledge of a phone call that House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy had with with Trump during the January 6th insurrection, during which Trump reportedly seemed to side with the rioters. And so the Senate took an unexpected vote to allow for witnesses, but ultimately Democrats abandoned that push a few hours later, setting the stage uh, for for Trump to be acquitted hours later. They ended up adding a statement from Herrera Butler to the the record, but that was about it. And I'd like to start our discussion there. 
Um, Jim, how much of a bombshell was that news about this McCarthy-Trump phone call? And how much do you think it really could have reshaped this Senate trial, if at all? Well, n- number one, we'd, we'd heard rumors, uh, not rumors, we'd had earlier reports uh, 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 anonymously sourced that this was, this was the case. The difference was that, that, that the congresswoman had actually taken notes uh, in real time and had gotten down a, a, a pretty good quote of what uh, Kevin McCarthy said he was told was that, that you know, the, the quoted Trump as saying, well, well, Kevin, I guess they, 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 they felt more strongly about losing the election than you did, uh, which, which it, uh, it, it, as 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 the uh, the house manager said, it went to his went went to the the uh, president's state of mind at the time. Uh, I thought it was interesting. We've 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 heard a whole lot about how uh, President Joe Biden has desperately tried to stay out of this, uh, out of, out of the impeachment proceedings. But it was a key ally, uh, Chris Coons of Connecticut, uh, who I think holds Biden's seat, uh, the, the seat that Biden. Once held that went to the House managers and and said that they they were in danger of losing uh, those seven uh, some of those seven Republican votes that they had and maybe even a few Democrat Democratic votes if they went down this this rabbit hole and you know I mean we were we were talking about maybe even a two weeks a two week delay um, for depositions because depositions are required. Uh, in an impeachment trial under 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 the Senate rules, you have to have somebody in front of a a, 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 a microphone, and it has to be videotaped. It has to be transcribed, uh, and and every everybody gets to ask questions of prosecutors and defend uh, defending attorneys. Brian, weigh in here. Do you think um, what do you think of Chris Coons's argument that it could have alienated some of the Republicans who who were leaning toward convicting Trump? Do you think it, it could have made a difference? No, and I think uh, Senator Coons, who I think is probably one of the more reasonable uh, Democrats, and he speaks, I'm like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense to me. I think he's right. Uh, people knew by Saturday how they were going to vote. And the, the Republicans that were going to vote guilty had already ter- determined that. And I don't think there was any appetite anywhere to string this out for what could have been a period of weeks if they had uh, called a, a long list of witnesses as the uh, – the law lawyers on each side were calling for. So I, I think he's right. I think it was, this was the right thing to do because everybody is ready to move on. The Democrats have done what they wanted to do. They had the trial. It was a predetermined outcome. And now, and it looks, even looking at it from a Democrat perspective, now they can begin to focus on Joe Biden's agenda as opposed to this sideshow that was never going to go anywhere. Aaron, do you think ending the trial without hearing from witnesses was the right call for Democrats? Or was it a missed opportunity, um, you know, to hold Trump accountable, to to give the public a fuller picture of what Trump was doing that day and his mindset on January 6th? Or was it best to kind of move on to, to Biden's agenda? Well, I think we have to trust the Democrat, the Democrats in Washington and their leadership. I mean, this was a tough call to make. I mean, as you talked about tomorrow, this was a spin that happened uh, in the, you know, in the weekend where we all thought we were kind of heading towards a vote. And then I think Democrats had a matter of hours to make a decision about what they wanted to do. I think that the American people heard enough uh, during the, um, the House manager's uh, testimony, particularly the videos uh, about how this president. Um, definitely played a pivotal role in inciting violence on the Capitol on January 6th. And also, tomorrow, if you just listen to, I know we'll get into this later, but if you listen to the Minority Leader Mitch McConnell's comments um, and how he basically said that the president 
uh, was responsible and played a key role in inciting violence on January 6th. I think that the American people, you know, heard enough. But ultimately, I, I've got to trust that the Democrats made the right call based on the information that they were given uh, to proceed without the witnesses' uh, testimonies. Audrey? And, and to follow up with that, um, you know, Schumer basically directed the senators. I was thinking about how much pressure, you know, um, Ornock and Ossoff would have from coming from their constituents about holding Trump accountable. And really, they took direction from, um, you know, the Senate Majority Leader uh, Schumer on that you really have to leave it to the House managers. They know what's going on. But I would add, too, that I think there was some response to the context of the time. I mean, we are in a difficult political context. You have the COVID-19 relief um, legislation teed up, but also a lot of other important legislation, some of which our own senators are uh, taking the lead on. And the the Republicans were already starting to create the narrative of, you know, wasting time and they're not taking care of you. So Democrats had to play um, their role very carefully, but they created the record. They created a record. And sadly, I believe that you know, it needed to be created, but not everybody was hearing it. I mean, that was one of the most disappointing things to me is that there was so much evidence that, you know, some of the media outlets, particularly on the right, really, um, you know, cut away from certain things that were disturbing. And, you know, we don't really have a, a lot of information about the response from the public. We have seen Trump's numbers go down somewhat, um, but they've always been deflated. I, I don't think in the end it will... Um, you know, do a lot yet, but there's a lot of opportunity where it could, but the narrative is set. Jim? Uh, yeah, it, it, you just uh, remember you've got, tomorrow. you've got uh, uh, two more f- shoes to drop, if you if you will. You've got, you've got the serious talk about a, a, a 9-11 style commission uh, to, pr- to probe the, the, just the intricacies, because I mean, we, 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 we were, we, we are only, we only thought we've only seen the top lines of what happened on January 6th that we, we don't know. We don't know, uh, all of the decision, uh, making that happened on the, on the public safety front. We know nothing, absolutely nothing about what happened within the white house and, and, and Trump's, uh, Trump's, uh, attorneys weren't, weren't about to tell us. Uh, so there's that. Then we have, then we have, as 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 we'll talk about with Mitch McConnell. You know, the I mean, we have the potential criminal prosecution of people uh, involved in this. Uh, Two hundred people have been arrested. Donald Trump is sure to be brought in either as a witness or a or a defendant in in some of these actions, and that too will provide uh, quite a bit of record. So, so I'm I, I think and, and I think the fact finding is is probably the most important uh, portion of this, along with the prosecution of people who brought actual weapons into the Capitol and actually tried to assassinate Mike Pence and and Nancy Pelosi. At the same time, Theron, something like a 9-11 commission is going to take years until we see, you know, any sort of paperwork or, you know, information come out of. Right now, it looks like Democrats are going to pass on the chance to either censure uh, Trump or try and prevent him from from seeking office again via the, the 14th Amendment. Is it is that a good move, do you think, by by Democrats or are they wasting an opportunity? Should they they be focusing on Trump, or does it make sense to focus on Biden and, and let him do his thing and kind of move on from the Trump era, or try to anyway? Well, think, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think we can do both tomorrow. I, I mean, ultimately, let's just back up for a second and, and, and just talk about what the Democrat 
did, but more importantly, what Congress needed to do to make sure that, you know, history is told correctly. You know, we had a president who not only, I believe, violated uh, the law, but also violated his oath of office. I mean, we haven't even really talked about how there's also, you know, the Georgia call that made national attention. And so I think the Democrats had to do this. They had to push this impeachment. The American people deserve to know all of the facts. And I think that they succeeded in doing that. Now, as we move forward, after the pre- former president has been acquitted, um, I think tomorrow all it's going to take is for former President Trump to do one thing to send out, you know, well, he can't send out tweets anymore, but maybe send out some message uh, to reopen this case even further. But ultimately, I know that from folks that I've talked to in the Biden administration, they applauded the uh, Democratic leaders who moved forward on this. But ultimately, we've got to continue to push the Biden agenda. We still have you know, millions of people out here right now, not just in Georgia, but all across the country that need this very, very important vaccine. Brian, um, we heard Dr. Haynes mention really briefly Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff both voted to allow witnesses and then to convict Trump. But they also are freshmen who have campaign promises to fulfill, starting with COVID relief. Um, how much do you think, first of all, this impeachment trial might help and, and hurt them? And just kind of talk about how you think we might hear Republicans frame this debate, especially for Warnock, who's up in next year. Yeah, I think for Warnock and Ossoff, this was a pretty easy political calculation. They had no choice but to vote guilty. There's no political repercussions for them. I would imagine that nationally we're seeing polling showing that a majority of Americans are in favor of a guilty verdict. I would imagine that Georgia probably reflects those national trends given where we are these days. So the politics of them are, are very easy. I don't think it's going to matter long term because they did what was expected of them. They didn't rock the vote. The only people who rocked the vote were the Republicans who voted guilty. And, of course, they're facing censure from their own state parties and protest, uh, protests from amongst their own partisans in their home state. So uh, for Warnock and Ossoff, this is the best of, of both worlds. They get to appease their base by, by voting guilty, towing the party line, and now— get to move on into substantive policy issues, which is, I think, better for everybody, except for maybe Republicans who don't want to see some of those uh, priorities put into legislation and move forward. So I I think it's great for them. I don't know that there's a Republican message that's going to be effective. I don't know that – well, no, I do know. Republicans don't want to go into 2022 with the message that – Warnock and Ossoff are too tough on Trump about the January 6th event. It's something that we don't want to talk about. In fact, what Republicans are going to want to talk about is the Democratic agenda that they want to get to work on right now. There's going to be a, a lot in that agenda that unifies Republicans in a way that they're not unified about anything else. The most unifying thing that Republicans have is Donald Trump. And that's a minority of Americans, not a majority, not even all that close to a majority, we know. So what they need is a unifying uh, uh, event around the Democratic agenda. Jim? Uh, yeah, you know, uh, we've uh, often kind of uh, stereotyped Democrats as the kind of people who wear their hearts on their sleeves. and But there are some Machiavellians among them. And, and you know— there is a case, if you're a Democrat, there's a case to be made for not convicting Donald Trump and for not 
removing him, the possibility that he can run for public office ever again. And that is because, just as Brian said, he, Donald Trump splits the Republican Party. He throws the he throws Republicans into a in, 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 into chaos. And if they can, if if Democrats can keep that turmoil going through 2022, they have a good chance of not only preserving their majority in the Senate, but building on it. Audrey? I think you're muted. We can't hear you. Of course, I had to do that for you too, Tamar, because I do that for Bill every time. But um, <laughs> I, I would um, I would note that the I- ideal marriage um, for uh the, the next uh, presidential race would be Donald Trump to run again with Marjorie Taylor Greene as his VP, and Democrats would be very happy with that uh, in terms of uh, having someone to run against. And, you know, that's what, that's what will happen. I mean, Jim is absolutely correct in that, you know, Trump does allow for Democrats to rally their base significantly, and they're already running and raising money. Um, and, you know, we're going to see a lot of activity. I don't know how many um, messages you guys got on your phone asking for money from all sorts of – I was at getting requests from Republicans and Democrats alike based on the impeachment um, outcome. Theron, isn't Donald Trump the perfect foil for the Democratic Party, or, or how much responsibility do they have to try and move past it and kind of show that, that the Trump era is over and Joe Biden is um, kind of the way forward? Well, I think that's exactly what what Democrats are trying to do. Listen, we elected a wonderful president and President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris. I mean, they're the perfect leaders to move us uh, in the future on the right direction, get this country back together. But, you know, we had again tomorrow, I think we had to go through this period. It was a very tough period for Americans. I know it drives Brian crazy that, you know, we're talking about a former president who he doesn't want to run uh, as his nominee. He just can't say that publicly. Uh, because he knows how polarizing he is, and that would just be a gift to Democrats. But I do think tomorrow you will see a huge pivot in Washington. You're up there. You're well-connected. And you'll start seeing the Biden administration really start pushing forward a bold agenda to make sure that the American people know that he has a plan and that he wants to move this country forward. Brian? Yeah, um, I'm sorry. What was the question tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to let you respond to Theron, but but if you want, I mean, let's talk about these 43 Senate Republicans who um, who voted to acquit Trump. I mean, it shows the grip that he continues to have on the party, even as he does kind of remain a little bit out of sight at Mar-a-Lago without his Twitter megaphone. You talked about how we're already starting to see, um, you know, state GOPs. You know, in Louisiana, we saw them vote over the weekend to censure Bill Cassidy for his vote. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Pennsylvania and North Carolina GOPs telegraphing, telegraphing their disappointment over over Pat Toomey and Richard Burr. Um, talk to me about how you think all of this impacts these these seven Republicans who voted to convict. And on the flip side, is there any downside for these Republicans who stuck with the president? Um, for for Burr and Toomey, I think I think they're very telling because both of them have already announced they're not running for re-election, so they are sort of political consequence free. It doesn't really matter to them. This is probably the end of the road for them politically uh, now, anyway. So, in in cases like Bill Cassidy of Louisiana, he just won re-election, so he's a very long uh, way away from facing political consequences, and and may not want to run again after after that. 
And, and then Murkowski in Alaska has taken on the far right in her party in Alaska and won in the past. So this is not new territory for her. She has a unique profile there. Uh, ben Sass basically doesn't care. He just, I mean, he's going to do what he wants to do, what he believes in. He's going to stand on his own principles, and politics uh, can, can be what they are, and he's going to plow forward. So there, there are unique circumstances. You know, the, obviously the easiest thing to do politically would have been to vote not guilty, to go the route of Mitch McConnell and have it both ways, essentially, to say we don't think the trial is constitutional, but yes, uh, President Trump acted inappropriately on January the 6th, and he bears a lot of responsibility for this. Audrey? But the thing, oh, sorry, Brian. Go well, ahead. I just want to say, going into 2022, to get to your bigger question tomorrow, is uh, if the Republicans make all of 2022 about Donald Trump and this trial and, uh, and, and staying loyal to him, it's going to be really hard to do the top priority for 2022, which is to regain the House and Senate. We have a high-profile race coming up here in Georgia once again. Warnock will be on the ballot again in 2022. We don't know yet which Republican will be taking him on, but we know there will be somebody high-profile and somebody very well-funded. So we need to have a message that is bigger than Trump. And if Trump spends the next year just picking off Republicans who have made him angry, people like Brian Kemp, people like the seven senators, people like the uh, 10 Republicans in the House who voted to impeach, we are not going to have a vision to take the country forward, and we will not win. Audrey? Well, Republicans do need a vision because, you know, ever since the emergence of the Tea Party, and remember how influential they were, and of course that changed. Uh, parties are very dynamic and politics is very dynamic. But, you know, over the last few decades, we've had, you know, the Republican Party kind of take on uh, a more anti-message, uh, anti-Obamacare, anti-immigration. So it would be interesting to see some of the candidates who are really making political calculations right now, not just for 2022, which is Mitch McConnell trying to win back, you know, seats in the Senate and, and, and hopefully, you know, do well in the House. You have a host of, of people running for the presidency. I mean, it is a long list. And this is where the potential for Trump to still do well um, happens because he has that 25 percent base. And the rest, I mean, you've got a list of like maybe 10 to 12 really um, potentially strong candidates running. One of them is Ben Sass. And I wanted to follow up with what Brian said because Ben Sass has a political calculation, too. I don't think he's just doing what he thinks is right. I think he, he is doing that in addition to having the belief that in the long game, his stance is the one that will will be best for that 2024 race. But there's a lot of them. Rubio, Rubio was um, tweeting out Bible verses the other day. Cruz was tweeting out, um, you know, stuff. That Sean Hannity, Cruz was retweeting Sean Hannity and Don Jr. So you kind of see what they're doing and how they're aligning themselves right now. You know, and no one knows what the impact of Trump will be. All right. I Let's take a break. And when we get back, we'll talk more about this impeachment issue, what it means for state politics. And then I'd like to spend some time talking about this, this pretty remarkable floor speech we heard from Mitch McConnell after he voted to acquit, uh, acquit Donald Trump. Uh, so stay with us. We'll be right back with more Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. 
It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. We're back with more Political Rewind. I'm Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter at the AJC, filling in for Bill Nygut. Bill will be back tomorrow. Our panel today is former AJC political columnist Jim Galloway, UGA political science professor Audrey Haynes, media consultant and Republican strategist Brian Robinson, and Democratic strategist Theron Johnson. Let's jump right back into the conversation. Jim, let's start with you. I want to talk about the impact of what this Senate trial, this second impeachment, could mean for Trump's popularity in Georgia and the Republican Party in general. You know, Trump has remained remarkably popular here among Republicans. Um, Do you think there's any reason to believe that the evidence presented against Trump at this trial will make a dent in his, you know, in Trump's ability to continue as the most important force in the party here? Oh, absolutely! I think it, it, it will make a dent. In 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 that in that, I think it will solidify uh, uh, suburban antipathy toward him. Uh, I think it. I think it. I, I think it really. Both he and Marjorie Taylor Greene in the 14th congressional district absolutely put a cap on Republican appeal right now. This is this is Brian Brian Kemp's big worry for for 2022. Uh, he can't run. If, if if he's perceived as a Trump Republican in November twenty two, uh, then then he's uh, then he's very very likely to to, to be a one term governor, uh, which we have not I, I, we have not seen that you know uh, well other outside of Roy Barnes we have not seen that, so th- so I think so I think that's very important, uh, and I think what you're seeing now on the national level. Uh, you saw it in in Mitch McConnell's sp- uh, uh, speech, which I, I, I'm, I'm sure we've got a, a, a clip on that team teed up. Uh, in Nikki Haley's uh, Political dot com interview that was released over the weekend, you see you see Republicans look. Trump isn't the only dynamic that 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 operates the Republican Party. Uh, the Republican Party also operates on money, and 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 corporations and the big donors. Are not going to be backing a Trump-oriented party, and I think that's that has a lot that had a lot to do with what Mitch McConnell was saying right after the impeachment uh, verdict. I think that's what that's what uh, uh, Nikki Haley is 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 keen to to look at, I, and I think uh, Brian Kemp. Brian Kemp is going to need money. He's going to need corporate money uh, uh, if he's to be successful in 2022, and I think Trump puts a cap on that. Brian, we saw after the insurrection, a lot of huge corporations, including many in Atlanta, paused their political contributions to anyone who voted to overturn the Electoral College vote and also just to all political donations in general. So even Democrats kind of got hit by that. Um, Talk to me about how you think this trial impacts uh, Georgia Republicans. And then I want to open it up to Audrey and Theron. You're you're muted, Brian. (laughs) Sorry. People like to complain about uh, money in politics, but it is an important part of how we communicate with voters. And, uh, and one thing that one of my favorite columnists always writes about is that we spend less on politics than we do on TV commercials for potato chips. So it, it really is a very small part of our, our GDP. It's not as uh, pernicious as 
everyone would like to believe. And if corporations really want to take make a statement here, if they want to say we are going to separate ourselves from those who funded insurrection or who voted to overturn the Electoral College, they have every right to do that. That is their First Amendment right to determine where their money-ass speech goes. But I would encourage them to do this. Give money to those Republicans who courageously stood in the breach and took political risks and stood up. People like Brian Kemp and Jeff Duncan and Brad Raffensperger and Chris Carr. These people were courageous. They uh, are going to take heat. I mean, Trump is still on the warpath about it. Give money to people like them. Otherwise, what you're saying means nothing to me. You're just, you're just saving a few bucks. You're taking the easy way out. We need businesses and leaders in our community to stand up and support the people who do the right thing. Aaron, I see you smiling as, as Brian's been talking. Weigh in here. Well, yeah, you know, my good friend, he, he's on message this, this morning, um, and, and I think the chief will tell me laughing, too. You know, what's interesting, Tamar, is that all those Republicans that Brian just named and thousands and others have had since 2015 to distance themselves from this, you know, I believe corrupt uh, an unethical president, right? And so now you have a Republican strategist coming on this radio saying, hey, we want corporate money to go to these guys who did their job, who basically stood up for democracy. And I've applauded many of them. I mean, Governor Kemp is in a very tough position. Uh, Jeff Duncan got a lot of those calls. He probably just didn't tape them uh, from former President Trump. And definitely Raffensperger, um, you know, stayed fast in his, his commitment. But the thing that I want to say is, is that these leaders tomorrow had years to distance themselves with Trump. I mean, you guys remember writing about this. These were people who would cozy up to Donald Trump when he would come to town and would praise him on his outstanding leadership, and they would ignore the text messages and the phone calls and the tweets and say, oh, it's about policy. So now they are trying to run from this very disruptive uh, and unpopular president who has destroyed the Republican Party. And then the last thing I want to say is this. You know, let's not forget, former President Trump is the reason why Senator Leffler and Senator Perdue lost. I mean, you know, there was other things that can go into that. But I think that if you had to rank the top three reasons of why those two incumbent senators lost, and yet we had great Democratic candidates, but they had a very unpopular president that they refused to distance themselves from who brought them down and ultimately cost them their political seat. Audrey? Well, you know what? I'm going to just go on probabilities as a political scientist. So a couple of things. Probability of President Trump being reelected for another term, pretty low. Only one other president has ever done that, and that was Grover Cleveland. Uh, number two, you know, um, the probability that there won't be another Republican that emerges that actually has charisma and not as much baggage or not as much divisive language is pretty high. I mean, look at what happened after Nixon resigned, and people were very concerned about what would happen to the Republican Party, and there was Ronald Reagan. And, you know, Clinton had an impact on the Democratic Party. He stayed in office. But after Clinton and, you know, his impeachment, we saw a historic presidency of Barack Obama. So, you know, one of the things I would say to, to people who are listening is politics is one of the most dynamic things. And even though we are very polarized, um, a lot of things can happen. And with Trump, you know, losers usually don't do that well later. And if nothing else, he is a two-time impeached president, holds that record, but he also lost. And, you know, a lot of the rhetoric surrounding the impeachment was a lot of people saying the dude lost. And, you know, he, he spread a lie saying that he didn't. And I think there'll be a lot more evidence about his, um, 
culpability. You know, he committed political arson. Uh, that's really a good term. He stoked the fire. He got the tinder really dry, and then he lit the match and, and basically walked away from it. And his supporters are people who do not always turn out to vote. They did when he was on the ticket. They showed up at the rallies. But these are people who have often been on sort of the fringes of, of politics. And without someone to really, you know, literally bring them to the voting booth, you know, that has an implication for the Republican Party, too, right there. I'd like to, to take some time in, in a second to talk about McConnell's speech. But before we do, as the Senate was voting on whether to convict or impeach Trump on Saturday, um, Trump's office actually issued a statement declaring that that Trump's movement has only just begun. And, you know, shortly after Richard Burr's surprising vote to convict Trump, the, the retiring North Carolina Republican, we started hearing more, even more rumors about Laura Trump, um, you know, Trump's daughter-in-law potentially running to replace Burr in North Carolina. So that's certainly something we're going to be watching for. Um, but let's talk about this speech from Senate Minority Leader McConnell. Um, minutes after voting to equip or acquit Trump, uh, we have a, a pretty lengthy um, clip of him talking here. But to sum up, he basically argued that, that Trump was guilty as charged. Um, Sam, let's play that tape now. There's no question. None. That President Trump is practically and morally responsible for provoking the events of the day. No question about it. The people who stormed this building believed they were acting on the wishes and instructions of their president. But after intense reflection, I believe the best constitutional reading shows that Article 2, Section 4, exhausts the set of persons who can legitimately be impeached, tried, or convicted. It's the president, it's the vice president, and civil officers. We have no power to convict and disqualify a former office holder who is now a private citizen. Jim, we saw Mitch McConnell uh, vote to acquit Donald Trump basically on procedural grounds. Um, you think this speech means a lot more than that. Why is that? Oh. Yeah, abs absolutely. Look, uh, uh, number one, let's let's if, if let's set aside the issue of hypocrisy. Uh, let's set a, set aside the the fact that the Senate de determined the, what what the constitutionality of of the impeachment trial was, and uh, just focus on the fact that 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 one of President Trump's top supporters, not one not one of his top friends, but one of his top supporters. Uh, said, uh, you know, maybe the courts are the best way to handle what what President Trump's do. Maybe the cops should take a look at it. Uh, that is, that, that, that's a, uh, we, we've, that's been kind of the underlying uh, tension throughout this uh, impeachment trial on the Republican side is, is, is how do you, how do you form, how do you create a Republican party that is no longer in the thrall of of this this cult of personality, and look, say what you will about Mitch McConnell, uh, he is one of the the best. He is probably the best strategist in D.C. 
and that's his job his job is to is to figure out how to get how to lead republicans out of this mess he's he is the top republican in washington dc right now that's his job his job is how to revive the republican party and take a look i mean just compare what 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 uh, mcconnell mcconnell's behavior to that of kevin uh kevin mccarthy uh, the republican congressman the house minority leader uh Kevin McCarthy, after getting into that terrible shouting match with with Trump on January six, uh, he 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 heads to Mar-a-Lago. I don't think uh, McConnell has talked to Donald Trump since I think December fifteenth was the last time. Uh, right after the the electoral college uh, named Joe Biden the winner, I don't think the, the two have talked since then. I don't think McConnell is interested in talking. Brian, I want you to weigh in here. You know, McConnell's been one of the most fascinating people to watch during all of this. Um, Jim's right. He's kind of made clear that, you know, McConnell's made clear he kind of wants nothing to do with Trump. He kind of cracked the door open for a little bit about potentially voting to convict Trump. But in the end, he decided to stick with the majority of his caucus. And and potentially this saves his job, um, you know, this vote of his. Um, how do you see all of this? And what are you expecting from congressional Republicans going forward? McConnell is one of the best strategists that we have ever had in, in leadership, somebody who just really gets the politics. Even though he is very conservative and is sort of a villain for the left, uh, he's also uh, not an ideologue in, in, when it comes to politics. You know, one thing he has really worked hard at is getting nominees for Senate seats that can win in states and trying to stop some of these cuckoos from getting the nomination and, and then assuring that Democrats uh, win those seats, which is what happened in, uh, when we had Todd Aiken in, in the in Missouri, we had someone like that in Indiana, someone like that in, in Delaware uh, in the past decade, and, and, and he has really worked to make sure that we can get candidates who can win. And I think he's trying to plot a path forward for the entire party to straddle this. And I think he had to do what he did on that vote because it would have been almost untenable to remain as majority leader when he voted against the vast majority of his own caucus on one of the most high-profile issues that will happen in 2021. But he also told us where he really stood on it. And he hung his hat on, on a reason that it's not constitutional. I don't know that he really believes that. He did what he had to do because at the end of the day, he's a pragmatist who gets things done and he can chart his own course. And I think the future for the party isn't about just defending Donald Trump. It's not about being a cult of personality. There will still be the uh, the looming presence of Trump. We don't know yet how that will manifest itself, and that will be telling and, and, and have an impact on how things play out. But I think over the next two years, the issue every day becomes less about Trump. This is just my theory. It could be totally wrong because Trump can, can pull – rabbits out of hats, unlike anybody I've ever seen in, in politics, and more about the agenda of the Biden administration and a countervailing opposing agenda put forward by the Republicans as the opposition party. And of course, this is all going to be layered over on the state level by governor's races that are happening all around the country in 2022, which will take a little bit of the focus away from the ideology and the partisan warfare of Washington to the state level where people have to balance budgets and actually get things done. And that is always a significant contrast. How does Brian Kemp rally Republicans to his side while also governing 
in his own Brian Kemp style that is sort of separate from the national Republican brand. Audrey? So McConnell also has stated, I, we've got to win independents and swing voters. Now, how do you, he knows that people like Matt Gates and Jim Jordan and all of the other sort of Trump acolytes are going to be out there raising money and, you know, uh, promoting candidates who are much like Trump during the primary. But if they win, it's highly unlikely that they can win a general. And uh, McConnell knows that. So he even alluded to Wyoming. And, you know, that's already started, already started. Yeah, and we all we already saw. You know, there, there's reports that McConnell has been telling associates he'll fight in 2022 against Trumpy Republicans who might wage primary battles against Republican incumbents. So we'll, we'll see him fight back uh, through that way as well. Um, Theron, it seems like McConnell is part of this group of senator Senate Republicans um, that voted to acquit Trump, but is hoping the criminal justice system will ultimately help sideline him. We of course have Fonnie Willis here in Atlanta. Um, the Fulton County DA's office is investigating this phone call that that Trump had with Brad Raffensperger, uh, you know, in which he asked him to find more votes. In addition to the call Lindsey Graham placed to uh, Brad Raffensperger. Um, talk to me about Fonnie Willis and, and what you think we can expect from this investigation going forward. Yeah. And, and one of the things I want to quickly talk about is just hearing everyone who I think did a great job of sort of, you know, giving their perspectives on what happened in Washington. But, you know, Republicans were just in a lose-lose situation. You know, if they voted to convict, they angered Trump and the wing of the party that supports him, which makes, you know, majority of their constituency. You know, if they didn't vote to convict, they revealed themselves as being corrupt loyalists, more interested in their own careers than doing what's right. So what they don't understand, though, tomorrow, and I think it's going to play out here in Georgia, is that Trump is coming after them anyway. And there's nothing they can do about it after enabling him for so many years. But to bring it home here to Fulton County and what new district attorney Funny Willis just did is, is very, very profound because we all heard that call. We heard that the president, former president of the United States, uh, basically asked the current secretary of state, who's a Republican, to go find him some votes so he can overturn democracy in Georgia, overturn the will of the people. And let's not also forget that the reason why Secretary Raffensperger recorded this call tomorrow is because he had had many, you know, multiple calls leading up to that call where he felt that he needed to protect himself by recording this call. And so I think what the district attorney is doing is the right thing to do. We need to make sure that everything is investigated, present all the facts in a, in a sort of um, trial or an investigation. And ultimately, let's, you know, let's let the, the people decide um, whether or not this president violated the law and also violated his oath of office by, that, by basically doing that phone call. All right. We have to get to our final break. Stick around and we'll be right back with more Political Rewind. We're back with more Political Rewind. I'm Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter at the AJC, filling in for Bill Nygut. He'll be back in the host chair tomorrow. Our panel today is former AJC political columnist Jim Galloway, UGA political science professor Audrey Haynes, media consultant and Republican strategist Brian Robinson, and Democratic strategist Theron Johnson. I would like to switch gears here. We spent 50 minutes talking about impeachment. Our audience is probably telling us to move on, and I agree. Um, let's spend the last few minutes of the show talking about a story my colleague Greg Bluestein filed over the weekend about Governor Kemp's efforts to reframe himself as the vaccine governor. Um, over the last couple months, he's held more than a dozen press conferences, done a bunch of media interviews, uh, visited eight distribution sites to all detail the state's efforts to contain the pandemic. Um, 
And I'd love to, let's start with you, Jim. Um, Let's talk about these efforts to help reframe his image. How helpful is this to him going into 2022? He's obviously coming out of of 2020 pretty bruised. You see Trump vowing to go after him uh, next year. And, um, you know, the possibility he's going to face, you know, his arch rival, Stacey Abrams, once again, who's riding high off Democratic victories. Is this a smart strategy for Governor Kemp right now? Uh, well, well. First of all, I, I would say it's probably the only strategy, and it. I, I would say that it's 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 less a strategy than a, than an actual challenge, uh, because as of this moment, as of the, this morning, this Monday morning, uh, Brian Kemp's aims and Joe Biden's aims in D.C. are pretty much on the same page. Both have got to corral the coronavirus if they're going to if 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 their administrations are going to be considered a, a success. The question is how you go about it. And of course, Brian. Brian, uh, in 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 one way, Governor Kemp is kind of at the mercy of mercy of the federal government, simply because that that is the the supplier of of COVID nineteen vaccine. So 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 there's that, but there's also a, a a philosophical approach that we're going to be that's going to be very much on display. Uh, Brian Kemp has has pretty much let the organization for vaccine distribution devolve upon local governments and and uh, uh, it, it, we, we saw it in his budget proposal uh, for for this year where he included no no extra money for for covid nineteen uh, spending that it was uh, uh, I think the only the only the only increase that he saw in community health we saw in community health uh, from his point of view was 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 licensing of tattoo parlors. Uh, that didn't sit well with with the the state house or state senate. They've 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 uh, pushed more money that way. On the other hand, you've got Joe Biden, who is who is very quickly uh, bringing in all the arms of uh, the federal government that he can into it, uh, including FEMA. There he is in, in setting up these massive distribute vaccine distribution centers. Uh, it, it really is going to be a very interesting. Uh, 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 kind of a real-time experiment in government, I think. Brian, you know, he um, there, there's very little control Brian Kemp has over the supply of vaccines, but he, of course, gets to administer that, the the rollout of it. Not only that, but you've, he has a potential working partner in, in Mayor Bottoms, um, a big ally of, of Joe Biden, but the two have kind of had a, a rocky relationship over the last year. Um, how do you see this working out for Brian Kemp, and what can he do to help um, solidify his position going into his reelection bid? Well, I love what he's doing, and it's partly because Theron and I have been encouraging Brian Kemp to implement this strategy on our podcast over the past couple of months because he had to pivot away from all of the talk about his role in Georgia's election, the, the role that earned him the enmity of former President Trump. And so he needed to change the conversation to something that he could control, something that was on the state level. And the pandemic and its response, the vaccine rollout, is the perfect vehicle for that. And you've seen him going to vaccine sites in in DeKalb, in Cobb, and in parts of rural Georgia. He is being the face of this effort. And one thing moving forward, and we're not there yet in the timeline, but we'll be there before too terribly long. You know, one thing that handcuffs him in communications as far as the lack of supply, like we don't have enough 
vaccine to put into arms to meet the demand just yet. He couldn't talk about that when Trump was in office. He couldn't say the Trump administration isn't doing a good job with this. But after a period of time, he can draw a, a line of opposition with the opposing party with Biden in the White House. And so now he is setting himself up as the face and the doer in Georgia to get this done. And if it works out, if we begin to get enough supply and we have the infrastructure in place, then he's going to be able to claim a victory as, quote, unquote, the vaccine governor. So it is exactly where he used to be. It's something he wants to be talking about and better than what we were talking about before for him. And as far as the budget goes, one, I mean, the licensing of tattoo parlors, Jim, is top of mind for all voters. It's something that was a pressing issue for everyone. We, we have to agree. But the other part about the budget is I think what, what Kemp was doing is something that Governor Deal used to do. He left something out of the budget so that legislators could go in and put their thumbprint on it and feel like they had contributed. They get a budget win out of this. So I think that, too, was strategic. It's not that he didn't think we needed these things. He wanted legislators to have ownership in this budget and that they could go home and go, look at what we did to improve the IT infrastructure of the Department of Public Health so that we have better databases, we have better idea of the, how the vaccine is being distributed and who is getting the vaccine. Theron, we have about two minutes left in the show. Talk to me about Keisha Lance Bottoms and her role here. She was at the White House on Friday meeting with uh, President Biden. Um, do you think this relationship is too fractured between Kemp and, and Bottoms, or can they help repair it? You know, I was with the governor and the mayor uh, last week. You know, we made a big announcement uh, with Microsoft uh, basically making uh, Atlanta one of their second largest um, places as far as employees and tremendous investment in the west side of Atlanta. And they were very cordial with each other. I mean, it was a very good conversation. Uh, and, and as you guys know, I know both of them very well. I think what the mayor showed is that her relationship with Joe Biden, now the president of the United States, is ultimately going to benefit Atlanta. Um, you know, she had an opportunity to go to the White House and sit in the Oval Office with the president and, and make the case of why mayors and county officials should have the opportunity, if we can work it out, uh, to get the vaccines directly and administer them to their constituencies. But I think, you know, real quick on the governor, I, I applauded the governor for, for doing more, uh, but it's his job. And also applauded him for going over to the Morehouse School of Medicine and making sure that, you know, we, we had tackled this problem of how disproportionately um, in some of the more rural, um, sorry, urban areas are not getting access to the vaccine. You know, the fact still remains that we've had 53,000 people who have been hospitalized, and then we've had, you know, um, 16,000, nearly 16,000 that have died. And so we still cannot forget that fact that the vaccine is definitely the most important thing, not only for his election, but it's the most important thing for um, people to try to stay alive. And so kids and parents can, you know, send their kids back to school. And so I think the mayor is going to continue to lead on this. And I think this relationship with uh, President Biden is going to ultimately pay off significantly for uh, the people of Georgia and Atlanta. All right, Theron, you get the last word. That's all the time we have for today on Political Rewind. I'd like to thank our guests today, Dr. Audrey Haynes, Theron Johnson, Brian Robinson, and the great Jim Galloway. Bill Nygut will be back tomorrow. Thanks to producer Sam Bermas-Dawes, senior producer Amelia Brock, and engineer Jesse Neiswanger for their work on the show. I'm Tamar Hallerman from the AJC. Thanks for joining us today and have a safe rest of your day.